If you're a guest here, my name is PJ. I'm one of the five pastors here, um, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Thank you for blessing us with your presence. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, we're going to start in Matthew 15, verse 21, and we are going to go to the end of the chapter as we continue our series, what I'm preaching on Matthew, at least until we get through to chapter 18, Lord willing. Matthew 15, verses 21, and we'll go all the way to verse 39. If someone has a pew Bible, someone want to uh, tell me the page number? 870. 870? Oh, it's in there. Thank you, Peter. Page 870. Great. So turn to page 870 in your Bible. Matthew 15, verses 21 to 39. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your translation if you have a different one. Hear God's word. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain, on a mountain, and sat there. And large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they gave glory to the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this de desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now there were 4,000 men who had eaten, besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, that is our prayer. We, we thank you for your word, that you speak to us, that we can feed on your word because we live by this word. And so we ask now that you would feed us. Give us the eyes of faith. Soften our hearts to you. Lord, you have life-changing mercies and they never cease. The streams of mercy are never ceasing, even to this moment of preaching and hearing your word. And so we pray that we would enjoy these mercies that we would revel in these mercies, that we would experience these mercies, and that we would glorify you for these mercies. Father, change our lives and set our lives on a different trajectory where we are always regularly overwhelmed and in awe of your greatness and goodness and glory because of your life-changing, never-ceasing mercies. Change us, Lord, we pray. Open our hearts to you. We desperately need you because we can listen, we can think, we can study, I can preach, 
But unless your spirit comes and unless Christ helps us, we will waste our time and not bear any fruit. So help us now. We need you desperately, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 15, 31 says, So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Click by Adam Sandler. It's a movie that I think was in the early 2000s. Uh, it tells the story of a husband, father, a worker, employee who was bored with his life, and he stumbled upon a magic TV control. With this TV control, he can fast forward parts of his life. He can rewind parts of his life. He can pause the people around him. He could put, do things in slow motion. And so as he got bored with life, he started to fast forward through many conversations, the, the difficult conversations, the hard things. When he would lie to someone, didn't remember something, he would rewind and figure it out in manipulated situations. He would fast forward sleeping because he wanted to work. He would fast forward through problems in his life and difficulties in his life. And he used this power of fast-forwarding through things and controlling the situation to manipulate people in situations to get a selfish end. And the reason why was because he didn't like his life. He was bored with his life and bored with those around him. Now, the story, the lesson in the movie is that it doesn't turn out good for him. But what I want you to think about as a Christian is that we often get bored with our Christian lives. The Christian life can seem boring. Living for Jesus can seem boring. Reading your Bible can seem boring. Going to church every Sunday can seem boring. Taking the Lord's Supper can seem boring. Uh, talking to people about our takeaways can seem boring. It just seems ho-hum, regular, routine. And we want to, uh, what's the chief end of man? What's man's main goal? That man, um, to what? To glorify God and, and enjoy him forever. So we want to do that. We want to glorify God. And Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly we want to enjoy the abundant life right but sometimes the abundant life feels boring to us the christian life feels either like a burden or boredom and it wouldn't and wouldn't it be just great to, to fast forward through our biggest problems i mean potentially i have a car problem that I'm going to have to take to the mechanic tomorrow morning it would just be good to just fast forward through and just get it over with there's a little bit of just a little bit of stress and just ah oh, you know, another car problem, this could be a cheap problem, it could be a really expensive problem, who knows, and I just wish I could just press the fast forward button and just kind of zip right through this problem. And that's a small one. You have bigger problems in your life, some of you do, and I have bigger problems in my life. Wouldn't it be nice to just kind of fast forward through our biggest problems and just get through it really quick, even the problem you're facing this week? It would feel good to do that. But there's a better way. There's a better way to live your life. There's a better way for us according to Jesus and according to Matthew. And so let's look at that here. This, this text helps us with this better way because this text shows us how our lives are filled with God's mercy. Our lives are filled with God's glory. Our lives are filled with God's provision. And it's not boring. So here's the main goal. Savor God's mercy for you. Savor God's mercy to you. Another way to say it is relish God's mercy to you. So that's the prayer. That's the goal. May God help us do this. May God help us savor his mercy to us, Christ's mercy to us. Now, how can we savor this mercy? There's three things we need to think about from this passage, and there's three little stories here, three episodes, and we can just get one point from each of these to help us think about how to savor God's mercies. The first one is persistent faith, verses 21 to 28. The second one is glimpses of glory, verses 29 to 31. And then the last one is sweet provision verses 32 to 39, okay? So three things here that we want to meditate on to, to savor God's mercy for us. Persistent faith, glimpses of glory, and sweet provision. Let's look at the first one here, persistent faith. Verses 21 through 28, I already read you the story. I will just re, uh, summarize the story for you now. So Jesus was just... Um, confronted by elders, scribes, Pharisees from Jerusalem. He was there among the, the Jews. And so he left the Jews and said, I'm going to go, go among the Gentiles. I need a retreat. I need a week away, a, a day away. I need, I need a, just a timeout. So he goes to a Gentile region where the Jews won't bug him. The scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem can't get to him. And so he goes, he withdraws to a Gentile territory 
near Tyre and Sidon, in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And he's approached by a Canaanite woman who hears, according to Mark, immediately when she hears that he's in town, she rushes to him. It says in Mark 7. So she hears about Jesus. She approaches Jesus, this Canaanite woman whose daughter is demonized, is oppressed or influenced heavily by demons. Okay? And so um, now if you're a mom, as a parent, I could immediately sympathize with this, right? If you're a mother or a father, we have some new parents here. I mean, when your, your baby's first born, you just want to protect them from every problem in the world, right? My child will face no problems in the world. I will do everything and lay down my life to protect my child from everything. That's what a parent wants to do. That's what a mom wants to do. And so here, she wants to protect her daughter from a demon who's oppressing her. That's got to be super discouraging when you have no power over your daughter or over this demon who's oppressing your daughter, terrorizing her mentally, maybe even physically, uh, emotionally. She's just in a wreck regularly. And you can't do anything. You try to just keep her from hurting herself, perhaps, but that's all you can do as a mom. And that happens, you, you think it'll go away after a day. Maybe she'll sleep on it, she'll be good the next day. Maybe a week after, you know, she'll be okay. And it just keeps going and going, and this demon is not leaving. This situation is not changing. As a parent, I would do anything to help my child get free of this situation. Wouldn't you? And so, so would she. So she hears Jesus in town. Maybe he's on a trip. She doesn't know, but she's going to him. So she goes to Jesus, and she cries out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Lord, son of David, help. And Jesus says nothing. He doesn't even change his direction, probably. He doesn't even look at her. Maybe, I mean, maybe he did look at her, which either way would just be really awkward, right? If he looks at her and says nothing, or he doesn't look at her and says nothing. Here's a desperate mom who needs help big time, and she knows someone who can actually help, and he's giving her the silent treatment. No comment. No attention. No acknowledgement of her presence and her need. Just silence. So what does she do? She bugs the disciples. And that's what it says, like, she approaches the disciples, and she starts nagging the disciples. Tell him. Tell him I need help. Tell him I need help. She goes to each disciple over and over. Just, she keeps bugging them, and she will not leave. And so the disciples get so exasperated that what do they do? They go up to the Lord and say, Lord, please help us. You know, if you want to help her, help us. Please send her away. Please send her. And when, he's, when they mean send her away, it doesn't mean send her away, get rid of her. She's a dirty Gentile. Uh, it most likely means send her away, like grant her her request just so she can stop bugging us. And the reason why I think that's the case and I got that from uh, D.A. Carson. But the reason why is, is the reply of Jesus. So Jesus does not talk to her, but he talks to the disciples. Lord, please just give her what she wants and send her away. And then Jesus looks at them and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Israel. She's not an Israelite. So sorry, guys, you got to deal with her. You find a way to get rid of her, but I'm only ministering to the lost sheep of Israel. That's why I came. And so she finally hears him talk. Oh, he is hearing me. And she, she, she knew he was hearing, but oh, like now she, she's at, he's at least acknowledging the situation a little bit, right? I mean, maybe not directly through her, but if the disciples talk to him and then he responds to them, now, she's, now she knows that at least he's thinking about the situation a little bit, right? He realizes she's not an Israelite. So when she, you know, when, when she smells blood, she goes for it, you know? Well, my daughter's in need. He's acknowledging a little bit. I'm jumping on this. So she gets, she gets right up to him. She kneels right before him and says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And then he finally responds to her. And he says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel, the children. I'm not here for those who are not Israel, the dogs. You're not an Israelite. You are a dog. I'm here for the children. Wow. What do you do with that kind of response? What does she do? Well, now, now he, Jesus, um, so first when Jesus says, I was only sent to lost sheep of Israel to his disciples, he's basically showing Israelite exclusivity, right? Only to the house of Israel. He's exclusive to the house of Israel. 
And then when she comes up, he says, I don't give children, I don't, I, I have bread, but it's for the children. You're not a child, you are a dog. What is superior, a child or a dog for a parent? The child, right? You feed the child, not the dog. At least not initially, and not the same thing. The, the, the priority, the superiority, the supremacy of value goes to who? The child. So Jesus here, first, he asserts Israelite exclusivity. Now he's just asserting Israelite superiority. We could even say Israelite supremacy of value over the dogs. And um, man, that's insulting to some degree, right? To be called a dog. Now, some debate whether he's like just insulting her calling her dog or dog being a house pet. Either way, the value of children and dog is just not on the same level. So it is derogatory to some degree. But the way that we would say pagan, now pagan today could mean like completely godless. But back in the day, pagan just meant not a believer. It wasn't insulting. It's like if you were a Greek, um, you'd call non-Greeks barbarians. It wasn't an insult. It's just non-Greeks were called barbarians. Non-Jews, non-Israelites were called dogs. So um, again, so it could be kind of that mild insult. It could be a little bit more deep, like you're a dog or, or maybe even just like a, a nice cuddly house pet. Because the, the word there's used for, it's not the, the one for stray wild dogs necessarily. So it does have the possibility of being a little bit milder. But either way, as mild as you make it, children and dogs, that's just not the same level, right? And so he just, he just humiliates or pushes her as a Gentile, as a Canaanite down. And she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites were condemned. God commanded in Deuteronomy for Israel to kill all the Canaanites. And actually, interestingly enough, it says in Deuteronomy, show no mercy. And what is she asking for? Son of David, have what? Mercy on me. And Deuteronomy tells you, kill all the Canaanites, show no mercy. And so here she is at Jesus' feet. Jesus has given her the silent treatment the exclusivity, and now the Israelite supremacy. What is she going to do? Forget you then. I'm out of here. Maybe give up. Maybe fire an insult back at Jesus. Oh, yeah? Well, what about you? And, you know, start, start talking about the Israelites' sins. She doesn't do that. What does she do? She responds with wit, with wisdom, and with confidence. She says, yes, Lord. Yes, yes, the children get the food, not the dogs. Yes, the children first. Yes, yes, but... Even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the children's table, right, Lord? Can I get some crumbs? Then Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment on, her daughter was healed. Jesus granted the request. What did she have? What did you say? Your faith is what? Great, she got mercy. A Canaanite woman got mercy. Now, Jesus is not obeying Deuteronomy. That's during the conquest in that time. They're in Roman occupation. There's just so many differences historically why Jesus is not uh, sinning by, diso like by not showing mercy to the Canaanites. That was a very specific context there as they're about to enter the promised land. So just in case you're thinking, well, Jesus showed mercy and the Bible says show no mercy. You gotta know the history and the, the story, the context. But all that to say, Jesus says your faith is great and he grants her mercy. Why? How do we see her faith? Her faith is what I call a persistent faith, a never giving up faith, an enduring faith, a persevering faith. Why? What did she persist through? What did she endure through? Silent treatment, Israelite exclusivity. And if you want to know about Israelite exclusivity, look at uh, or listen to Matthew 10 verses 5 through 7. Matthew 10, 5 through 7 says this, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, disciples, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. When Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, 12 apostles, he said, don't go to the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a priority, there's an exclusivity, even before this conversation, that Jesus has with his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's an Israelite exclusivity, an Israelite priority that Jesus has. And so she, she, she endures and persists through Israelite exclusivity. And then she perseveres and persists. She keeps asking, even when Jesus does a Gentile humbling of her. I almost use the word humiliating, but I don't mean humiliating in a sinful way. Jesus never sinned. But he does put her in her place by calling her a dog. He calls her a dog. Now, was Jesus an Israelite supremacist? Yes or no? 
How many of you say yes? How many of you say no? Well, I guess it means what we mean by supremacists. I'm not mean white supremacists where, you know, um, one group is more human than the other or inherently more uh, of, of value and the other one is just needing to be subservient and enslaved to another. That's certainly not what I mean. But look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 10. Keep your finger there. You can listen or turn there. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 10. This was in my devotions earlier this week, before I even study, started studying this passage. And Deuteronomy 28, 1 jumped out at me. I, I even had to pull out my pen to underline it. Deuteronomy 28, 1 says this. This is the promise of God if you obey the covenant. Now, if you faithfully obey Yahweh your God, Israel, as you're about to go in the land, and are careful to follow all his commands that I'm giving you today through Moses... Yahweh your God will, here's what he's going to do for Israel, Yahweh your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. You hear that? Yahweh your God, if you obey the command, keep the old Israeli covenant through Moses. If you obey this, Yahweh your God will take Israel and put them where? Far what? Above all the other what? Nations of the earth. All the other nations of the earth. The supremacy or the superiority the far aboveness of Israel over the nations. So much so that when you get to verse 10 of Deuteronomy 20, it says this, then all the peoples, when, when God exalts Israel, then all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnic people groups of the earth will see that you, Israel, bear Yahweh's name and they will stand in awe of who? Of you, Israel. The nations will stand in awe of Israel. They will be amazed at Israel, not because Israel is special in and of themselves, but they bear whose name? The name of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, the God of the covenant, right? They bear his name. And so because they bear his name, the other nations will exalt or be in awe of Israel. And that goes back to Israel's mission. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Israel was to be called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what do priests do? Priests mediate. And what do they mediate? They mediate blessing. They mediate blessing from God to the people. And so the whole kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, is to be exalted as a kingdom, a royal priesthood. But when they're, when they, if, they're, if they're serving in this exalted ro um, role of royal priesthood, they're, if they're successful, what are they going to mediate to the rest of the nations? The what? The blessing of God. Because all the nations, all nations are under the what? What's the opposite of Blessing cursed they're cursed for their sins they need god's blessing and god has chosen to use israel as the royal priesthood to mediate that divine blessing to the cursed peoples of the world because we're all cursed in our sins and that that's the role that's genesis 12 god said he'll give a family to to abraham and they will through him all the families of the earth will be blessed that's Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. And that was God's design for Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, Israel was to be keeping God's word so that when Israel kept God's word, Yahweh's word, all the other nations will say, hey, our God is not like Israel's God. What's your God's name again? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who is he? Why do you have this wisdom? Why do you guys have this love? Why do you have this flourishing? Why do you have this joy? What is up with you guys? And the other nations would inquire about Israel, and actually, a lot of them would join Israel. They would join Israel. They would join and, and, and move to that nation, just like Ruth did, if you read Ruth chapter 1, where she leaves Moab and joins the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. That's what they would do. They would see the amazing superiority of the people, not because they're superior, but because they have whose name? Yahweh's name, that they would want to come to them, and then the nations would get blessing. Zechariah 2, verses 10 through 12, you could look at that later, but I was reading that in my devotions this week, and it says, that God, it says, Daughter Zion, rejoice because I will restore you, and all the nations will join themselves to Yahweh, and you will all be my people, singular. God's people will be made up of Jews and Gentiles. How is God going to do it? By restoring Zion, Jerusalem, Israel. And through Israel's exaltation, the nations get blessing mediated through Israel. Does that make sense? So God is for the supremacy or the superiority of Israel, but not for Israel's sake over against these other nations, but he's, he's raising up Israel for the blessing of other nations. It's the same thing we do with Jesus, actually, to be honest, right? Christ is exalted, but in his exaltation, we get salvation. Now, the dominant story of our culture is this. I have a right before God for the good to the good life. I have the, it's my right to have a good life. Now, if we're talking about human rights, I would certainly say as humans made in God's image, we have human, we have basic human rights. 
But we make the mistake as, 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 um, as those in, in society today as saying, God owes me a good life. I have a right before God to a good life. And what we learn from this Canaanite woman is that's not true. She has no rights before Jesus to impose on Jesus that Jesus has to recognize for her. And that's the same for us today. The truth is we don't have rights before God because we're sinners. We're outcasts. We're rebels. We're damned and condemned before God. The wages of sin is death. We have no hope. We have no rights before God. We have no claim that God owes us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. The only thing God owes us because we're sinners and rebels and selfish, the only thing God owes us is justice. And justice for rebels is condemnation and damnation before a holy, righteous God. So she overcomes all of this and even, even undergoes Gentile humbling and saying, okay, I am a dog, but I need crumbs. That's actually how someone receives the mercy of God today, right? If you're going to become a Christian, if you're going to receive the mercy of God, you cannot come to God as if God owes you anything. You need to understand, friend, that you are a sinner before a holy God and God is angry with you. He is righteously angry at you and he has aimed his wrath in your direction and God never misses. He will punish all sinners for their sins and they will be damned forever in hell. And you and I, all of us here are are sinners. We all deserve that wrath. And the only way you're gonna get mercy from Jesus is if you stop claiming that God owes you something. And instead, you humble yourself before God the way that this woman was getting called, she was getting silent treatment, Israelite exclusivity, Israelite supremacy, um, calling her a dog. And she just says, I'll go with it. I, I deserve nothing. I just want some crumbs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who admit their bankruptcy, they have no rights of their own before a holy God. And so they throw themselves at God for mercy, for mercy that they don't deserve. And so what is the substance of her faith? So that's the obstacles to her faith. She has persistent faith. But what does she actually believe? She believes that Jesus can heal because she goes to Jesus, obviously. She calls him Lord. I don't think that means, going back to Matthew 15, I don't think that means that she understands that Jesus is the son of God, that he is Lord overall, truly God, truly man, in one person, two natures. I don't think she understands any of that. It it could also just be the word for sir. But she does say Lord, and then she calls him son of David. And who is David? The king of Israel. And David was promised a son who would reign and bring in the kingdom of God. So she at least says, this man is the son of David, the king of Israel. So he is in the line of kings of Israel. He is the Messiah. Now, she might not know what a Messiah does or is, but she does know that he does heal people. She does know he's cast out a few demons. She even might have heard that he, did it for, she, that he does it even for Gentiles because she might have heard that there, there was a Roman centurion who had a daughter who was sick and that, he, and that Jesus healed her, his daughter. And Jesus said to that man, I've never seen faith like that in all of Israel. This centurion, this Roman centurion Gentile had great faith. And God and Christ healed that man's daughter. And she might have heard that and said, hey, you're the Messiah. You heal people. You heal Gentiles. They need to have faith in you. I believe in you. Come give me the healing my daughter needs. And so you see all of this converging here. She has confidence in Jesus that even dogs get crumbs. Even Gentiles get blessings and mercy. Even if they're not central to God's Abrahamic covenant, his Israelic covenant, his Davidic covenant. Even though the Gentiles are not central to it, at least in terms of the main instrument, they are the recipient, they are part of the recipients of it, right? She might not have known all that. Psalm 2 talks about the son of David, who's going to be the Messiah, and says to the kings of the earth. This is a, Psalm 2 is an evangelistic call to all Gentiles. God's Messiah is the king. You want to oppose him? God laughs at you. You're going to be crushed under this king. But if you kiss the son, if you trust in him and find your refuge in him, you will be happy. You will be blessed. Psalm 2, the great Davidic psalm about the son of God, the Messiah of Israel, will be the one. You kiss him. You pay homage to him. You join yourself to him, you take refuge in him, and then you'll find happiness. Maybe she didn't know Psalm 2. She probably didn't know Psalm 2. But as Bible believers, we know Psalm 2. And this Davidic king, this Davidic covenant is not only for the blessing of of Israel, but also the Gentiles. So she has great faith, Jesus says, because it's persistent. Now, this persistent faith, just like the Roman centurion who understood God's authority, this woman's faith, it's persistent because, get this, I want you to have persistent faith. So here's what you you need to understand about persistent faith. It was great faith. It was persistent faith because she was confident. She was confident that Jesus would have mercy on her. 
She knew if she could get his attention and if she could reason with him, he would not turn her away. She knew it. In her mind, it was just a matter of time. And so how long would she do it? How long would she do it? As long as what? As long as it took, right? She would just stay there as long as it took. She knew it was coming. And if I got to stay here for two days, three days, five hours, 10 hours, I'm staying here because, Lord, I need your mercy. I need the crumbs. Now, this is opposite. Now, Jesus calls the, these two Gentiles great in faith. You know what he calls the disciples over and over again? You of what? Little faith. Why? Because when they were in the boat and Jesus was sleeping, they're panicking. We're going to die. And Jesus wakes up. The storm's still going. Why are you of little faith? And they're like, just fix the storm, you know. And he's like, why are you of little faith? Or Peter, when he walks on water by faith, he starts to sink and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus picks him up and says, you of little faith. Jesus is going to feed 5,000. He's going to feed 4,000. And he's going to say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say, oh man, we forgot bread. We're going to starve and Jesus is going to be mad at us. Someone, for, someone dropped the ball on bread duty. And Jesus says, I've had 5,000. I've had 4,000. You of little faith. And then in chapter 17 as well, um, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. He comes back down. Uh, nine of his disciples are trying to cast out this demon from this boy, and they can't do it. And Jesus says, you of little faith. Over and over again, the disciples are pictures of little faith. Here's a woman who is supremely confident in an Israelite who's asserting Israelite supremacy. She is supremely confident that she will be given mercy by this son of David. That's faith, and that's, that, that gives you power to persist when you're confident. Now, I don't want to smash you too much. Little faith is better than no faith, okay? But the, the call here is for persistent faith. Go beyond little faith as much as you can and just pray, Lord, I have little faith. Help my unbelief, you know, and ask for more faith. Now, here's some application to you before I move on to the second quicker point. Christian, Jesus comes to you. He comes to us. He hears you. And he, I think what he's doing here, Jesus tests you. You guys get that here? Jesus tests you. Keep coming to him in persistent faith. And here's a challenge for you, if your faith is strong enough. Praise God for your problems. I can make it a little bit harder. Thank God for your problems before you know the solution. Even one step harder. Thank God for your problems, even before there's even a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel to your problem. You know what it takes to, to praise God and thank God in the middle of a dark trial when you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel? You know what it takes to praise God? What does it take? Faith. It takes great faith. That's what it takes. Why? Why should you thank God? Not because your problems are fun or exciting. Some of your problems are heartbreaking. They cause us to cry. They burden us. They break our hearts. But they give us fresh opportunities to trust and experience God's mercy. I had a little trial this week. A little compared to some of you. I got the diagnosis on my knee. You guys already knew. I thought I tore my ACL. Well, I found out on Tuesday that I officially tore my ACL. So I got the MRI reading. I knew it was there, but it, it was like a punch in the gut emotionally to get that on Tuesday, even though I already knew that was the case. And then I'm go going over the fighter verse, which I was wrong on, uh, which was uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which is for the next week. And I'm going over it on my way here to the intern discussion. I'm just quoting, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly all the more boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Where does Christ's power reside in me? When I'm weak and when I boast in my weaknesses. So I'm like, Lord, I wanna boast in a broken ACL, a torn ACL. Because I can't have your power reside in me if I don't boast in this. I, I need to thank, I, I don't know why, but I want to thank you now. I want to boast in it now. Because I want your power now. And I, I'm glad I have a torn ACL rather than I, that I don't. Because if I didn't have it, I couldn't experience your power residing in me. Thank God for your trials while you're in your trials. Before you see the, end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Trust in Jesus. He loves you. He has mercy for you. He is merciful. All right. Church family, encourage one another in the faith because to be honest, even though it takes great faith, how many of us are feeling weak in faith at times? We all are, right? Some of us, some of you come in the Sunday strong in faith. Some of you come weak in faith. That's why we're here together. So if you're great in faith, encourage those weak in faith. If you're weak in faith, admit to brothers and sisters in this church today that you're weak in faith and ask for help. Ask for prayer. Ask for encouragement. And even come on Sunday night to pray persistently for God's grace in our church's life. And if you're not a Christian, I already asked you, I already told you, you're a sinner who needs God's mercy. You need to humble yourself before God. God sent his son Jesus to live for you, to die for your sins and rise from the dead, to pay for your sins if 
you'll repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus is testing not only Christian's faith, he's testing your faith too, just like he tested this Canaanite woman's faith. Will you trust Jesus as the one who hears you, as the king of Israel, as the Lord of your life? Will you humble yourself before him and lay down all your objections and all your reasons why God owes you? Will you put all of that down, all of your sin, all of your rights, and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to save me from my sins. I entrust myself to you. Jesus is calling you to do that this morning, right now, through my voice. All right, so the point of the sermon is savor Christ's mercy for you through persistent faith. So persistent faith is the first one. Second one is glimpses of glory. And this is short because I want to spend the rest of my time on my third point. So the second point here is glimpses of glory. Now, in this short story, verses 29 to 31, Jesus goes up on the mountain on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. He's healing the lame, the crippled, the blind, the mute, and many others, like the deaf, according to Mark 7. So Jesus, there, people are bringing people. Jesus is healing people. And this was amazing. I mean, imagine seeing Jesus heal people right in front of you. Imagine bringing your friend. Imagine bringing your daughter. I imagine myself bringing myself. I, I tell, I've told people this week, if Jesus was in San Diego or San Francisco, I would take my car and I'd drive up there. I'd take a bus. I would get there and say, Lord Jesus, can you please heal my ACL, please? And restore my torn meniscus. Um, I'd ask him. I would. And, and, and then to, but then to, if you actually witness it and you see it and then you get an MRI and the results come back and they're like, oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. Your knee is like a 20-year-old's knee. Wow, that'd be amazing, right? <laughs> and you see the MRI results and you, you say, this is amazing. That God is healing people. Deaf people are hearing. Lame people are walking. The crippled are walking. And, and most of all, which is only true of Jesus, no one, no one else on earth did these miracles, he heals the blind. He restores their sight. That's a messianic miracle. This is amazing. So they stand in awe of Jesus. It's happening right in front of their eyes. And what does it say? Here's a key, key phrase, end of verse 31. When they saw this, they gave glory. Who's they? The Gentiles, right? He's in the Gentile region. The Gentiles gave glory to who? To whom? The God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who chose Israel, the God who exalted Israel, the God who commissioned Israel to bless the nations. That's the whole point of Israel, Israel's superiority, was so for the blessing to be channeled to the nations so that they would glorify God, the God of Israel, not their own pagan gods, not their own false gods, not their own religious deities and their traditional tribalistic deities, that they would turn from their false gods to the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here they are seeing miracles, and so they get glimpses of glory. What did they do? They come, they bring people, they see miracles, and they're amazed, and they glorify God. You know, glorifying God in your life does not come from a vacuum. It doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes from seeing glimpses of God's glory in your life and in the lives of those around you. It comes from what we call, at least in our church, we sometimes say evidences of God's grace. In our pastor council, we have a meeting and we just say, what are some evidences of God's grace? Where do you see glimpses of God's glory, God's mercy, God's activity in our church family, in your life? It's all over the place. You literally could do it all. You could list them all day until you go to sleep tonight without stopping. There are so many glimpses of God's glory around you. The call here is to see it. Christian, Jesus comes to you. He hears you. Um, he... he, he um, he wants you to come to him and see his glory. He wants you to be healed. He wants you to be restored. He wants you to see other people restored. And so come to Jesus for heal. Come to Jesus to see his glory. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me say something to you for those who aren't Christian. If you're not a Christian, one way you could see God's glory is by asking other, other Christians here in this room their story of God, how God came into their lives and how God changed them. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you, just take any Christian here and say, hey, can you share with me how God changed your life? Is he really that glorious? I mean, PJ was talking about mercy. The passage was talking about mercy. Is there really mercy? Can, can you share it with me? I just want to hear about it. Children, children, listen up, children. At least for me as a parent, when I see you kids, I see God's glory in the fact that you're, ra you're being raised in a church. But kids, you need to be careful of this. You kids are seeing God's glory regularly at this church every Sunday that you might think it's just normal. But let me tell you, kids, the world outside of God's churches is not like this. The love here, the repentance here, 
the sharing here, the burden bearing here, the giving here, the generosity here, the smiles, the warmth, it's not out there in the world. What you guys see in here in this church family, kids, what you see in this church family is unique. It's God's glory. And you, you've grown up seeing it your whole life that you might think it's normal, but it's not. You're actually seeing God's work in people's lives and in them sharing life together. And my prayer for you guys is that you see that glory and you learn to love the God of Israel, the God who, who shows his glory through these things. All right, let's go. So we see here to savor God's mercy, we need to, um, we need to relish, or to, we need persistent faith and we need glimpses of glory. Lastly, we need sweet provision. We need to uh, understand and um, meditate now on God's sweet provision, Christ's sweet provision. I'm going to tell the story briefly. You guys see it there in verses 32 to 39. Jesus is on the mountain. He's healing all these people. And then he sees a large crowd, 4,000 men plus women and children. What does he feel? He feels what? What's the key word there? He feels what? Compassion. Compassion. He cares. Not just for Israelites. It sounded like that earlier that he only cares for Israelites, right? I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but... You're like, oh, I was just testing you guys. I care about everybody. I do care about Gentiles because he sees these crowds of 10,000 plus Gentiles and he cares. His heart breaks. He has compassion for them, for the crowd. And so he shares his burden with his disciples. Man, I'm, look, at, they've been following me for three days. They need to eat. If, they go, if we send them home now and say, all right, everyone, um, we're done teaching. Go back to your homes. They're gonna, they don't have enough food. They've been lasting these last three days. They're out of their lunch and we need to give them something before they go. So the disciples are like, yeah, but where can we do that? How can we feed all these people? As if they didn't experience Jesus feeding 5,000 just a few weeks or months ago. So Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? Or what do you guys have? What food do you have? Let's do a stock check. Let's check what, what our supplies are. We got seven loaves and we got a few fish. Great, give them to me. So Jesus gives them to him. He tells everyone to sit down. He takes the seven loaves and the fish. He, he takes the seven loaves and the few fish. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread. He gives it to his disciples. His disciples give it to the crowds. 4,000 people are sitting down and they are all eating together. Are the disciples eating too? Yes or no? Are they hungry too? Yes or no? Yes, most likely. Is Jesus eating too? Yes or no? Yes, they're all eating. Not just Gentiles eating. Gentiles and Israelites eating. Gentiles and Israelites and Jesus eating. Gentiles and Israelites and Jesus eating together. Eating together here and so jesus filled them up not to the point where they're just full enough but they were full full you know what i mean like where, where their stomachs are full like they everything all the food that they want they could have there's enough it's not like oh i don't want to get the last piece because there's other people who are hungry no they have so much food that you can have as much as you want it's an all-you-can-eat buffet because once they're done how many baskets are left seven baskets full of bread seven baskets full of bread so this was an all-you-can-eat buffet, unlimited supply, eat to your heart's desire, feed your kids to their heart's desire, and all the parents say, amen, and, um, and yeah, feed, yeah, feed to your heart's desire, and then, it'll be, and, then, and then go on your way. And so that's what happens here. That's what's happening here. And then Jesus sends them away, they get the baskets full, and they cross back to the Jewish area across the Sea of Galilee. So what's the point here? Jesus cares. Jesus provides. That's why I call this sweet provision. Jesus shares. Jesus eats with these thousands of people in this great impromptu feast full of Gentiles and a few Jews. And what did the crowd do? They followed Jesus, right? They stayed with Jesus. They sat with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. And Jesus eating with them is a big deal. Remember the Samaritan woman who's surprised? How can you, a Jew, speak to me who's a Samaritan? How can you ask me for a drink? We can't have drinks together. Not, it's not the custom of the day. Actually, do you remember when Peter went to Cornelius' house in Acts 10? And he shared the gospel with them. And in Acts 11, he comes back to report to the church. And here's what the, the uh, it says this in Acts 11, 2 and 3. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party of the church criticized him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. What's the implication? You are not allowed to go to them and what? Eat with them because they're uncircumcised. They are Gentiles. You're not supposed to eat with Gentiles. But here's Jesus. Peter had a meal with Gentiles back with Jesus when the 4,000 were fed, right? Jesus was here breaking customs, breaking Jewish customs to eat with Gentiles. Now, the Jewish law, Israelite law, was about certain food restrictions to keep them holy from the Gentiles. That built into, that progressed from food laws to segregation laws, so to speak. Stay away from them. Don't even eat with them. But what if you eat food that's within the Jewish law? It's, right? it's, it's kosher. It's within Israelite law. It should be fine, right? Well, by the Jesus' day, it wasn't fine anymore. But Jesus breaks that. 
He'll break the custom for, to be biblical and to be true and, and to be loving. And that's what he does here. So they eat and they're satisfied and full with Jesus. And the point of the story is that Jesus feeds and provides for the needs of others. He satisfies the needs of some Gentiles. That's the point of the story. Jesus provides, feeds, and satisfies the needs of some Gentiles. You guys see that there? Praise Jesus for a sweet provision. Look to Jesus for a sweet provision. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, this is impossible. How can someone feed 7,000 people? I mean, not 7,000, 4,000 men plus women and children from seven loaves. If you're not a Christian, I understand that this may seem hard to believe, but we believe it truly happened historically. Let me give you two reasons why, and you might, this might not convince you, but at least consider it. Number one, we believe in a God who can do anything. God created the world by speaking his word. So one, just God is able to do it. That's, I know you may, maybe you don't believe in God, but just know we believe in an all-powerful God. So it's not a problem for us to believe it happened. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Jesus fed 4,000 men plus women and children. And this story, and even the book of Matthew, was written within that same generation. They are publicly propagating this story to other people while these people are still alive. If he fed 5,000 men plus women and children among the Jews, and then 4,000 men plus women and children among the Gentiles, and they're teaching about Jesus and telling people in the world to repent and trust in Jesus in that first generation, and they're telling these stories, and these things didn't happen, all it took was for people to say, hey, I was in that crowd. He didn't do that. We all brought our own food, right? In other words, the fact that they publicized this story so quickly and so publicly in their evangelism and discipleship of the lost any skeptic who wanted to discredit Jesus could just take a 5,000 eyewitnesses plus the women and children eyewitnesses and just say, hey, we can prove that that didn't happen. But it did happen. Or at least, the, they, at least they, they were confident enough that it did, that they were willing to propagate the story publicly. So either Christians are just idiots who just want to shoot themselves in the foot, or they actually believe it happened because it actually happened, and they don't mind eyewitnesses being held to account, being held to account by eyewitnesses because they saw it really happen. Those are just two things to think about if, you're, if you don't believe these things can happen. Now, is there any significance to seven baskets full? How many of you think, yes, there's significance? How many of you think, no, there is no significance? All right, let's try it again. Everyone vote. Just where you lean. It's not your final answer. I won't hold you accountable. Okay. Uh, how many of you think, yes, there's some significance to this? How many of you think, no, there isn't significance to it? All right. Well, I'm going to say yes, and here's why. Um, number, or Matthew 16, when Jesus quit, says the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and say, oh man, we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, forgot the bread. I fed 5,000 and how many were left over? How many baskets were left over? And they're like 12. I fed the 4,000. How many baskets were left over? Seven. Jesus reviews those situations and tells them to recall a number. Now, this is not, thus says the Lord. I'm just telling you what I think. Okay. This is my guess. So I do think there's significance to the 12 and to the seven. And here is my guess. With the 12, who is the 5,000? Feeding 5,000 what? Israelites. And so if you're feeding 5,000 Israelites, uh, and the number 12 with Israelites, what do you think of? 12 tribes, the people of God, okay? The 12 tribes of Israel. And then when you think of seven in the Bible, seven is the number for perfection or wholeness, completeness. Okay, completeness. And we get that from the seven, it starts with the seven days of creation with the seventh day that doesn't have a morning or evening, which is kind of like, oh, there's something special about seven there. And then you just go throughout the Bible and seven is not always significant in the Bible. So it might not be here. So for those of you who said, no, you might be right. It's not always significant, but it is sometimes. In Revelation, it certainly is. Seven angels, seven seals, seven bulls, seven spirits of God, um, you know, seven blessings. There's seven all over, all over um, Revelation and it's clearly intentional. Um, but here, I think it is intentional as well. And what, what does it mean? What's the, what's the point? If it's the number of completion, here's my take on it. It's just my guess, but I think I would lean towards this and commend it to you. It's edifying as well. And it's true biblically, whether it's here in the text or not, but I, I think it's here. The seven is referring to completeness that God's people are not complete until the Gentiles come in. God is going to save his people. Christ has come for his people. The 12 tribes built now in the new covenant and the 12, on the 12 apostles foundation, but it is not an Israelite only people of God. It is the incomplete people of God until the Gentiles come in. And when the Gentiles come in and every single one of the Jews and Gentiles who are going to be predestined to be saved, who are going to be saved, come in, then the people of God are complete and they are incomplete apart from it. And so um, that's what I think is going on here. And now look at the, the passage again here. Go back to verse um, 
36. And look at the very last phrase of verse 36. What does Jesus tell, what does Jesus have the disciples do? What do they do? They take the bread and what do they do with the bread? They what? They give it to the who? They give it to the crowd. They give it to the Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus wants to provide for the Gentiles. He wants to share a meal with them, like we said. But so here's what's going on. Jesus is feeding the Gentiles. He's sending his disciples to bring the bread to them. Now, Matthew 28, 19 is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, including Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, right? But including Jews as well. Go, to, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and give them the gospel. Give them Christ to help them come to Christ. Feed them the word of God, right? So here, they give, their, they give bread to the disciples. The disciples give bread. But there's something else. Going. So the point is, Jesus is mediating his provision, his sweet provision, through the disciples to the Gentiles, right? To feed them and provide for them. Now, I think there's a little bit more significance here, if you look at it again. Matthew 15, verse 36. Look at the verbs here. Or just listen to them. He took seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them. And he gave it to his disciples. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. What does that sound like? The Last Supper, right? The Last Supper. The Lord's Supper. That's the instruction in Matthew 26, Matthew or Luke 22, Mark 14, I think. You have these instructions of the Lord's Supper. Took the bread gave thanks or blessed it. So it goes either way. Those are both are using blessing with the cup, gave it to his disciples, broke it and gave it to his disciples. And so here, I think there's an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Now, I think it's actually pointing to the Lord's Supper in some ways. Now you might be like, PJ, that's going too far. I don't think it's pointing to it. Okay. Even if it's not pointing to it, it's paralleling it, right? Because what is the point of this passage? Jesus provides for the needs of the Gentiles, right? That's the point. Jesus provides for their needs out of compassion for them. What is the ultimate need of the Gentiles? Salvation, right? And how does he provide it? By giving himself. What does the communion point to? This is my body, what? Given for you. This is my blood spilled for you, Jews and Gentiles. So even if it's not a direct pointer to it and you're saying, PJ, that's too tight of a connection, fine. The idea is parallel, at least. God provides for Gentiles out of his compassion. The ultimate provision is, is communion with, is salvation with God. Not just bread for one day, not just daily bread, but bread for all eternity. That you'll never hunger and thirst again. And the Lord's Supper points to that same reality that this is pointing to. So whether it's just two parallels pointing or whether this is actually pointing to the Lord's Supper, which is pointing, I think it's that one. But either way, there is some connection here in terms of the, the fact that God provides for his people bread. He takes it. He gives of himself. And what do we do with the Lord's Supper? The goal of the Lord's Supper is to remember Jesus, to proclaim his death until he comes, and to commune together. So I want us to think, if we could just kind of um, step back here. I want you to think about meals for a second in the Bible. In Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says this, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day I drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom. So here they are taking the last supper and Jesus says, you're going to take the last supper over and over again. Do this in remembrance of me, but I'm not going to take it until when? Until the father's kingdom comes in its fullness. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we should be thinking not just of this moment and communing with God now, but the final time when Christ comes and we commune with him, just like they communed with him at the feeding of the 4,000 here, right? So let's think about the significance. Eating with the 4,000, the Lord's Supper, the final coming meal. Revelation 19.9 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible, yeah? And think about meals there. What's significant about meals? You can eat from any fruit of the tree of the garden. Just don't eat of the one in the middle, right? So you eat. And who's walking in the garden with them? God. They're eating in the presence of God. That's creation in Eden. Then in the fall, still in Eden, they decide to eat a different thing that God forbade. And instead of eating with God, they eat. And what do they do? They don't go to God. They what? They hide away from God. That's bad eating, right? And then after that, just to, just to follow the picture of eating, in, in the Passover, they're, they're, instead of killing your firstborn, you kill the animal, the Passover lamb, and then you eat that, and your redemption through a sacrifice is pictured right there in the meal that you have together every year. And then when they start traveling to, to the promised land, they go through the wilderness, they're wandering, and they get hungry, and God provides manna from heaven to satisfy their needs, to meet the crowd's needs. And then, this one is crazy, maybe you don't remember, it's Exodus 24, 8 through 11, the elders eat with God on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that story? Do you guys know that story? They eat with God on Mount Sinai. Here's the verse. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. 
Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of Israel's elders, they went up the mountain, and they, this is crazy, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. Beneath his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli. And you get that with Ezekiel visions and, and Revelation. As clear as the sky itself. They see God on the mountain. And then it says, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw God and they ate and drank. God brings them on the mountain. They see, this, they see God's presence right there. And then they eat with God. And they eat in God's presence. They eat in God's presence and they drink in God's presence. And then when you get the tabernacle, you have on the show, on the table, the bread of presence, symbolizing God's presence. And that was to be, that was a daily bread there that was to be renewed of showing the bread of presence that we eat in God's presence. In 1 Kings 4, people are eating and drinking in the promised land with all kinds of abundance. Uh, in famine, when they're exiled from the land of Israel, they actually have no food and they're out of God's presence. So they're not eating in God's presence. They have no food and they have no God. I mean, no, no God present with them. And then there's a prophecy that they will eat again. When Jesus steps on the scene, he eats with Matthew and the tax collectors, eats with sinners, and the Jews come and confront him, and he eats with them anyways. And they're eating with Jesus in God's presence, a bunch of sinners. Then Jesus eats with 5,000 Israelite men plus women and children. Then he eats with 4,000 women or men plus women and children with the Gentiles, and they eat with Jesus in God's presence. And the Lord's Supper that we take every week as God's people, we eat and we drink in God's presence. That's what we do. That's what, that's what has always been done. We eat and drink. That's part of God's design. We eat and drink in God's presence. So as they're eating, Jesus took the bread, Matthew 26, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup after giving thanks. He gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In John 6, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you don't have life. And what he means by that is come and believe in me in John 6, 35. By believing in Christ, we feed on Christ by faith in Christ. And this is a, uh, Paul says with this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he what? Comes. So eating this bread and drinking this cup is a proclamation. It's God's word being proclaimed to you. And when you believe in it, that's faith. You're feeding on grace through faith. You're feeding on Christ through faith. Okay, and so we proclaim God's death, and so we are Christ's death, and here, so we commune with God. So that, that's the climax, and that's our story right now. We're constantly in the story of God eating with his people, or in the present, of God's people eating in the presence of God together, communing with God. It climaxes in Revelation 19, 9, where it says this, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's it. That's where it ends. The marriage feast of the Lamb. We will eat and drink with Jesus. And you know what, brothers and sisters? This is not a New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament promise. Listen to Isaiah 25, 6 through 10. Here's God promising a feast with Israel and with Gentiles. Listen to Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, remember Jesus feeding the 4,000 on a mountain. Here it says here, on this mountain, talking about the end time meal. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, so food and wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations, the Gentiles. When he has swallowed up death once for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the Lord's power will rest on that mountain. No more tears, no more crying, feasting on the mountain, Jews and Gentiles as the one people of God forever and ever. And so what do we do now? We have sweet communion. I wanted to call the, the, this third point sweet communion, not sweet provision, but I don't want you to think about the Lord's Supper just yet. It's sweet communion. We commune with God and with each other in God's presence as his people. So enjoy sweet communion today. If you're not a Christian, we invite you into this feast and into this friendship and into this communion and into this community. If you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus and call on Jesus to save you, you are invited into the community and into the communion of those who feast with God, those who receive the mercy of God. Christian, we commune with God today, with Jesus, in his presence, with each other, 
in God's presence as his temple, as his family, as his sanctified and journeying people. And we gospelize the nations too. Why do we gospelize the nations? What did they do with the bread? They took it to the who? To the crowds, right? We gospelize and disciple our neighbors in the nations, Matthew 20, 19. Why? Because we want to give the bread to others so that they, they too might commune with Christ. Listen to this quote by John Patton, who was a, was a missionary to uh, cannibals who were eating people. This is, this is his journal entry about the first time he did the Lord's Supper with them. For years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. Can you imagine? Years we've toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake of the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. How cool would it have been to be there with the 4,000 feasting and seeing this? To see things with biblical lenses, to see the truth of God's amazing work around right there with the 4,000 on the mountain. When you see amazing things, you look to God and you give him glory. You give glory to him. But what I want you to, to challenge you with is that you need to look at those who take the Lord's Supper today. You know some of each other's stories, right? When you take that cup and that bread, look at each other's faces and remember, I, I do most of your membership interviews. The only ones I haven't done is Ruel and Trish because I was on sabbatical. But I've done all of your other membership interviews, right? So I know your stories. And when I take the Lord's Supper and I look around at what God has done in your lives and what he's doing, it's glory. It's glory. That he would take sinners like us, Gentiles, and commune with us together. Church guests from other churches, to see them come to take the Lord's Supper, not even knowing their stories, but knowing that God has saved them too. It's glory everywhere. Glimpses of God's glory. How cool is it? I mean, it might be cool to be there on the mountain with the 4,000, but how cool is it to be 5,675 miles away from Jerusalem? That's where Bellflower is, from Jerusalem. How, how cool is it to be there with God's new covenant temple, making him known at the ends of the earth, celebrating his body broken for or his body given for us and his blood spilled for us? That's glorious. It's more glorious to me than being there with the 4,000. So the story is simple enough. Have persistent faith in the Lord. He heals people. See glimpses of God's glory and commune with God and each other. Let me close with this. I know I'm going a little bit over, but I haven't preached to you for a long time, so I'm close with the story. <laughs> the story of Forrest Gump. You guys know the story of Forrest Gump? I'll just tell you about him. His life was filled with adventure, significance, and privilege. The privilege of meeting and spending time with all kinds of people and enjoying all kinds of things that, were wonderful, that this wonderful world had to offer. Let me just tell you a little bit about his life, or a lot about it. He breaks out of a disability. He runs fast. He has a best friend named Jenny. He plays college football, makes the national team. He meets the president. He goes to war in Vietnam. He earns a medal of honor, risking his life, and becomes a war hero. He meets that next president. He reconnects with his childhood friend, Jenny. He competes for the United States and becomes a ping pong champion, like Ross Kwong is the BBC ping pong champion. <laughs> he becomes a, a, a ping pong champion. He meets the next president because of that. He sets up a shrimping business. He survives a storm so that he is rich in the only shrimping boat there. He reconnects with Jenny. Jenny leaves and he runs around America for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. He finds out that he has a son with Jenny. He marries his childhood sweetheart, Jenny. He becomes a widower because Jenny dies. And then he serves his son as a loving dad. And his story's not even finished yet. What an adventurous, full, crazy, significant, abundant life. And your life is more abundant. Your life is more significant. Everyone who takes this cup and this bread today, your life is more significant than that life. It's more adventurous. Your life and your calling and your commission begins in eternity past when God predestined you to be saved. His covenant love stretches from eternity to this moment into eternity future. And we are walking with Christ. He is with us as we love each other and love him and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. May God, please, Lord, please, may God break the dullness and blindness and low expectations we have of seeing and savoring his glory. His glory is everywhere. It's everywhere. 
and his mercies are new every morning. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing your praise, open our eyes to sing and see your grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise, it calls for deep amazement, it calls for worship, and it calls for communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the bread of life. Thank you for your compassion on us. Thank you for, for coming to us, for hearing us, for testing us, for restoring us, for healing us, for showing us your glory and the glory of the Father. Thank you for embodying that in your incarnation. Thank you most of all for giving of, for providing our needs of daily bread and then the ultimate bread, your life, your body given for us, your blood spilled for us, for the forgiveness of our sins that we might eat with you and feast with you now every Sunday into the world to come. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when we will sit at the table with you and you for the first time will drink the cup with us. We long for that day. We pray Maranatha come, Lord Jesus, and until then, help us to persist in faith, help us to see your glory, and help us to commune regularly with you and with one another by faith in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.